Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, on this, the first anniversary of Russia's illegal, unprovoked, and brutal war on Ukraine. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Debt talks are stalled and a sleeper issue threatens the next National Defense Authorization Act as the White House prepares to submit uh, its budget request to Congress on March 9. And Speaker McCarthy releases January 6 surveillance recordings to Fox News uh, in the name of transparency. President Biden made a historic and courageous visit to Ukraine, pledging unwavering support for Kyiv uh, as long as it takes, with Vladimir Putin blaming the West for the war, uh, showing equal patience to win, uh, and suspending the New START uh, agreement. We're going to discuss that uh, in a moment. At the Munich Security Conference, leaders from around the world called for more aid for Ukraine faster, while Antony Blinken, uh, the U.S. Secretary of State, warned that China is preparing to send lethal aid to Russia. In fact, some analysts already believe that third parties uh, are doing that. U.S. lawmakers visited Taiwan seeking to arm Taipei to the teeth to deter Beijing from miscalculating as a Chinese satellite apparently fired a laser over Hawaii. Uh, North Korea tested a new missile or, or tested several new missiles, uh, and there is growing discord in Israel over uh, controversial judicial reforms, as well as mounting attacks on Palestinians. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair of the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody following the Atlantic Alliance, and also helping us complete a CNAS hat trick this week, by the way, I should point out, given we had Richard Fontaine on uh, Tuesday, uh, and we had uh, Dr. Stacey Pettyjohn and Becca Wasser on the Air Power podcast yesterday, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Uh, good morning, everybody, and thanks uh, so very much for joining us, uh, particularly Michael and Jim. Welcome back. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, Fortress Information Security. Sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors uh, our air combat coverage. Uh, everybody, welcome uh, again. Michael, welcome back. Um, I know uh, you've let your fans suffer long enough, uh, okay. so it's, it's good to have you back on. Uh, certainly uh, a very important week, uh, but still uh, a lot of stuff going on on Congress. Obviously, we have the, the debt ceiling hovering. Uh, you have a sleeper issue uh, and the NDAA, you know, and we've got, of course, January 6th uh, surveillance tapes, which are going to be politically I think problematic and everybody's asking why Kevin McCarthy did what he did when he did it. First, walk us through where we are uh, on the budget side of things and the debt ceiling side of things and the sleeper NDAA issue. Sure. So it looks like the deadline where the Treasury could exhaust all its extraordinary measures might hit us sooner than we thought. Uh, it's possible this could hit in June. And you know, uh, Speaker McCarthy and President Biden have really only had one meeting uh, to discuss how we're going to get past this. Uh, and the only way out, I and mean, we've talked about several options here, but the only realistic option here is for Congress to pass legislation uh, raising the debt ceiling. And the Democrats seem to be divided on this. I mean, Senator Schumer, who is the majority leader in the Senate, keeps talking about how they're going to win. Uh, and again, as I said on previous podcasts, I think that's a mistake because uh, I think it only 
puts the uh, Republicans back uh, with their back up against the wall. But at the same time, Senator Joe Manchin uh, is saying that he thinks that the White House position is wrong, uh, that they need to uh, work with McCarthy and the Republicans. They need to sit down with them and that uh, the president himself needs to speak up and get involved. And I think, you know, the Biden does have experience with this. I think a lot of us forgot that back in the Obama administration, that it was Biden that was tasked by Obama to have secret negotiations with Eric Cantor uh, on how to cut spending and raise the debt ceiling. So I think, you know, uh, I think that Biden may have some cards to play up his sleeves because he's been down this path before. Um, But you know, obviously this has serious implications uh, for spending and defense spending. But, you know, I think defense spending is looking to be in a better place. As you mentioned, the budget is expected to come out on March 9th, though that will be the skinny budget. We're expecting the justification books to come out about a week or two later. Uh, But from what we understand, the defense budget request that the administration will submit will be higher than what Congress passed last year. I think it's a very smart move on behalf of the administration. It could be very difficult for Republicans to cut that number. Uh, so we don't know what that number is going to be. Uh, it's possible they could still add to it, but at least I, I feel pretty confident that the Republicans would not cut it. And look, a lot of this business is luck and timing. And I think the Chinese uh, spy balloon really helped us here. I mean, those briefings uh, continue on Capitol Hill. I mean, Senator Dan Sullivan on the Armed Services Committee said it earlier this week, I don't think there's one U.S. senator who has been going to these briefings that thinks that the message out of this is less defense spending. And Senator Kramer, who's on the Armed Services Committee, said uh, it would be a hard time to convince me that we should be cutting anything in the defense budget. Uh, so at the same time, uh, it, you know, the progressives in the House, uh, led by Mark Pocan and Barbara Lee, reintroduced their legislation to cut $100 billion from the defense bill, reallocate that money toward education, infrastructure, healthcare, right. energy, things like that. Of course, But of course, that's not going to go anywhere. And we'll see that legislation again when NDA comes to the floor, probably offered as an amendment. However, you know, there is another thing percolating behind the scenes. I mean, Russ Vaught, who was the o- last OMB director for um, Donald Trump, ha- is actively working on the Hill. Uh, and he has emerged as one of the central voices, apparently, uh, shaping this showdown uh, for federal spending and the national debt. And several Republican lawmakers and staffers are acknowledging that they're meeting with him on a weekly basis. Uh, so he, he has a budget proposal that, cut, that calls for cutting $9 trillion over the next 10 years, uh, mostly from thousands of d- domestic uh, programs. And he advocates a freeze in military spending, but he wants to cut $2 trillion for Medicaid, $600 billion uh, to the Affordable Care Act, $400 billion in cuts to food stamps, hundreds of billions of dollars in cuts to educational subsidies, and he wants to cut the State Department and the Labor Department uh, in half. Now, I think we should also note that when Vought was the OMB uh, director, that in his first year, the budget deficit was well over a trillion dollars. In his last year, it was over $4 trillion. But this is a, a threat that per, is percolating behind the scenes. And there's still you know, yet another uh, danger for the NDAA and I think to some degree the appropriations bill too. And that's the DOD abortion policy. Uh, remember late last year, uh, Secretary Austin issued a memo on how to uh, afford abortions for military service women uh, who are in states where abortions are not legal. And the uh, Hill has been privately warning them against pursuing that this year now that Republicans are in charge. However, DOD released a series of new policies last week to provide additional support to service members and dependents who need to travel outside of state to receive an abortion, which includes allowing up to three weeks of administrative leave. So this policy states that service members will have access to lawfully available, non-covered reproductive health care, regardless of where they are stationed. Uh, Mike Rogers came out blasting right away, saying that the Biden administration chose to make the DOD an abortion travel agency over a lethal fighting force. 
right? And again, warns that he repeatedly told political leaders of the administration not to pursue this policy. This, you know, will be something that I expect the NDAA to strike. Uh, and then the question will be, will the Democrats be able to vote for an NDAA that takes that language out? Uh, and the NDAA needs Democratic votes to pass. And then again, it will be an issue when it comes time to conference that bill with the Senate, since it's controlled by the Democrats, and would the president veto this bill over that issue? And it becomes an issue for the appropriations just, bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let me just briefly interrupt, right? What would we, what would we have them do? Because this is happening, right? I mean, this is kind of a real, this is where real life collides with politics. What well, do they propose happen then? I, I'm going to have to guess at what they propose. All I'm saying is what, I, all I know is what they don't want to happen. And they do right. not want to see government funds pay for this. So, for example, I would expect in the appropriations bill to say that no funds shall be made available for these activities that the DOD would want in order to pursue this policy. Uh, so I think that the service w- women would be on their own to figure out how to do it, how to travel uh, in order to get uh, abortions in states that allow it. Then the question right. would then become, uh, would they be granted leave in order to do so? Uh, so I think this is a, an issue that's serious, but it's something that uh, they would need to figure out how to work out. Look, we don't even have the budget request yet. We're already talking about CRs and NDAA being in trouble, but this is a serious issue uh, percolating behind the scenes. Um, let's uh, go to the broader political implications of Kevin McCarthy's uh, decision to hand over all 44,000 hours of security tapes uh, from the January 6th insurrection to Tucker Carlson. Um, speaker claims transparency, but that would also mean releasing tapes that, that means releasing tapes to everybody and not just one news organization. And the January 6th committee worked sort of hand in glove with Capitol Police and intelligence agencies not to disclose certain things uh, that would, uh, you know, compromise members and their security. What's McCarthy trying to achieve with this ultimately? Well, look, I think, uh, you know, remember, we've talked in the past about the deals that McCarthy had to cut in order to become speaker and that there were some things that we knew and that there were a lot of things that we'd heard that we didn't know about. And that um, a lot of members were asking, what other deals are there on that were agreed to that we don't know about? And apparently this was one of them. Matt Gates uh, came out the other day and said that this was part of the deal in order for them to give Kevin the votes for speaker. So Kevin's living up to his obligations under that deal. Uh, to release these, uh, you know, the 41,000 hours of surveillance video to Tucker Carlson. Now, look, I think there should be some concerns about this on several levels. I mean, one, uh, we do, we have seen earlier this week because of the Dominion voting system uh, lawsuit against Fox News that Tucker Carlson, uh, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, and others at Fox knew that uh, Trump was lying about election fraud. And they were actually mocking him uh, behind the scenes, but intentionally lying to their Fox audience because they didn't want to upset their Fox audience and or hurt their advertising or their ratings. So to give this material to them, uh, this is really not, this is a very disingenuous um, source. So they're going to be very selective as to what they use uh, from these tapes to only further the narrative that January 6th was a non-event. And at the same time, as you alluded to, the security concerns here are very serious because it shows areas of the Capitol that um, people don't know exist and places where the members had to shelter to escape uh, the mob that was attacking the Hill. So there's there's a lot of concern here on on multiple levels. And I I think that um, Democrats are right. Uh, to be upset about this. 
Um, I should I should also point out, right? I mean, where you're you're absolutely correct. Uh, what happened to the deficit under Rusvat's uh, management? We should also point out there was a pandemic involved, and you know, sort of like all spending limits uh, were were off, even if uh, the administration was somewhat less than disciplined in how it was spending money, uh, and as well. Um, I, I want to shift to the discussion, obviously, to the war on Ukraine and the first anniversary. Uh, and, um, you know, we sort of acknowledge uh, that uh, what the president did was courageous, indeed, unprecedented. I mean, I don't believe an American president has ever been in, a, in, a, in an active hot war zone with air raid sirens going on in a place that was not controlled nor had a large uh, American troop presence uh, in it, uh, ultimately, or, or, or an allied, you know, sort of safe, uh, safe ground, uh, if, if, if you will. Um, really quickly on the political side of things, uh, uh, Michael, before we shift to sort of the mechanics of sort of what does winning mean, right? Everybody is committing themselves to win, but leaving blank what the winning means. And at the end of the day, Vladimir Putin's attitude is, I'm going to partner with China, I'm going to get access to weapons. Uh, you know, they may have all the watches. I have all the time, uh, ultimately. And then the new start contributes to that to add a little bit of, you know, nuclear vagueness into it, where he feels they're not taking him seriously. Blind us, maybe that uh, those threats become um, more, um, uh, uh, you know, have a little bit more bite to them. How did this go over on the Hill, uh, Michael? Uh, really quick, right? Republicans were blasting the president for being weak. Uh, and cowardly for not going. And then when he goes, the talking point becomes, look, he's unnecessarily reckless. Uh, and, and that this was an unnecessary provocation of, of Putin. Where are most members on this? Uh, look, I think you're right. I was disappointed by a lot of the Republican reaction, although it wasn't uniform. I mean, there were several Republicans, I think, rightly praised what the president did, which I think was very courageous and brave and showed tremendous leadership uh, by going over there. Um, but you had you know, Governor, former Governor Asa Hutchinson in Arkansas, uh, who might be a presidential candidate, uh, really stood up for the president and his support for, uh, for Ukraine fighting for freedom and democracy. Uh, we saw Congressman Mike McCall, uh, who's chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, also uh, go over and meet with Zelensky shortly thereafter uh, and support the president's actions. Uh, look, there was definitely you know, some attacks from some of the crazy caucus like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Andy Biggs, Matt Gates. Um, you know, talking about how we don't pay taxes to fund foreign countries, wars that aren't even in NATO allies. Of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene spelled allies incorrectly in her tweet. Um, and then, um, you know, there's a lot of people saying that he should be in Ohio right now because of the train derailment in, um, in East Palestine, Ohio. But if it wasn't for the train derailment, they complain and say he should be at the border or somewhere else. Right. But I was concerned about some of the moderate Republicans who also uh, attacked the president and said things like we need to take care of people at home first. And that to me is very interesting when they say that, because at the same time, you have Republicans talking about cutting Medicaid, cutting food stamps, you know, cutting uh, uh, education subsidies, cutting meals on wheels. So how's that taking care of home first? To me, it's really a contradiction. But I think the president did make one mistake. And it's something that I've talked about in previous podcasts where there really still is very strong bipartisan support for military aid uh, for, for Ukraine, but that the support for the non-military aid is the problem. And I've said that several times in the past, and Biden knows that, but yet he doubled down on that in his speech earlier this week, where he talked about paying for Ukrainian pensions and social programs. And that did not go over well with the Republican conference or with their base and voters back home. And I've been texting with a lot of Republicans that are getting an earful from their folks that this is not what they want their tax dollars to go for. So I think that really kind of undermines the president's cause when he talks about paying for those things. Um, uh, I, I wanna uh, open this up uh, to uh, everybody to discuss 
you know, the, the trip, some of the messaging, obviously we have the China storyline as well. Patrick, very eager to get your sense on it and everybody's sense on how we uh, counter them. Um, Jim, why don't you start us off uh, and then want to hear from Dove and then Patrick, right? How does this war end? Um, what is the end game in it? Because everybody is saying we're in it to win it. We're, we did not make any of the armaments decisions. The Ukrainians are using more rounds in a month than we produce in a year at this point, even though the U.S. Army does have a plan. Doug Bush has discussed getting to, you know, sort of 90,000 rounds uh, a month. The Russians hope that they can compensate from this by drawing rounds from all over the world, including the Chinese and the North Koreans. Um, you know, we didn't surge our war industry, as we've discussed on this program. What does winning mean in Ukraine one year into this conflict uh, at this point? Because everybody's well, leaving it to Zelensky to decide. And I'm not even sure the Ukrainians have decided exactly how they're going to win it. Well, I mean, that's exactly right. I, uh, what does winning look like? How does this end? What does peace look like? These very important questions that uh, we have learned to ask through our various wars after 9-11, uh, Afghanistan, or the invasion of Iraq. What does the peace look like? Um, but what we also learned, though, that those trying to answer that question early on in a conflict are usually wrong. Uh, and so I think the same thing holds here uh, is that no one really knows. I think Zelensky, if you ask him, uh, he's got a maximalist idea. If you ask Putin that question, how does this end? Well, you know what Putin's going to say. It's maximalist as far as the Russians are concerned, too. And I think for us, when you ask Biden, when you ask others, you know, it, it each has its own little nuance, I think, on this and uh, on what it looks like. But frankly, no one really knows. There's got to be a lot more fighting done on the battlefield to really begin to shape what the trajectory could look like. And we're not even close yet. But I think one thing that we have to prepare for, and I think this is going to your point about uh, time and watches, uh, and that is that um, uh, Putin for sure is going to play for time. Uh, we have to be ready for that. And I think a lot of the message uh, that um, that Biden was spending uh, was sending out as he made his very important visits over the past few days. Um, those, uh, the, the point is that we have to dig in, dig down, understand that this is going to be a long-term thing. We're going to have to deal with the supply chain and this type of thing. But more, more important, politically, we're going to have to get the American people and the allies as well, uh, understanding that, that they have got to dig in for this, that, this, that, that there is no clear uh, answer to your question. And that uh, all we know is this will probably be a very long conflict, and we just have to be ready for that, and not uh, and not and not give the impression to Putin that in fact he's right, that he can wait us out. And unfortunately for the West, we've got some examples in the recent past where we lost patience, uh, uh, where uh, we showed a fatigue, uh, and those that wait us out can win. And we cannot allow that kind of perception. Uh, to take root in Putin's mind and that for him to be proven right. But that's going to take a lot of political capital uh, on the table. Uh, you know, this is not just the battlefield in Ukraine. It's the battlefield in Washington and among other capitals in the West where the, where the political side is going to have to make sure there's an understanding of that. Uh, and, and that's what we're faced with. I, I think it's very interesting, uh, Jim, that, um, you know, all even people we know uh, will privately say, well, it's important for us to negotiate this away and, and move away from it. The nuclear dangers are such that, you know, it, it, it's just that, that mindset that somehow we can hit the reset button and sort of get back to normal exists 
and that is, does not exist anymore, uh, right? At a at a fundamental level, um, right? Dove, just, I want go go yeah. ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. J- just on that, you're absolutely right. There, you're going to hear people talk about getting to the negotiating table, and and that's a negotiating table could be in the in the future, but it's not it's not around the corner. Uh, number one, and, and number two, I think a lot of people who who think that. This is going to be like some of the conflicts we've seen since the end of the Cold War. Some, some that we saw in the Balkans or other places where a quint uh, or a quartet or whatever uh, managed to get uh, the Dayton Peace Accords going or something like that. That's not what we're looking at here. And I think, I think there's, a, there's a new generation or two of policymakers and diplomats who have not gone through these kinds of things before at least the scale and scope that we're looking at now. Uh, and so they're, they're, they're doing some wishful thinking based on what they might have seen as, as junior diplomats or students that happened during the Balkan days or, or some of these other conflicts since the end of the Cold War where, um, where there was some sharp fighting and then um, you know everyone gathered in Paris and came up with a peace plan. That's not where we are right now. And I think this is a, a major a uh, place where uh, the learning about the nature of warfare is going to take place with the younger generations that are in there and are start suddenly looking at something that's not like what they have experienced in their lifetime. And so those that have this wishful thinking that, you know, we just got to get to the negotiating table and have a ceasefire or something, that's not what we're looking at here. And that point is now going to be learned by this, uh, these younger generations coming up as decision makers. Uh, Dove, let me uh, bring you into this, right? I mean, from your perception and in the conversations you're having, right? How does uh, this end? Um, and and then an armaments question. I should point out to our audience that you were the first comptroller who was in the seat where U.S. industry surged after 9-11. Uh, and we have not surged, really. Um, there was a lot of talk, some uh, uh, preliminary work. Obviously, the challenge was considered by some a little bit sharper now because we had leaned down to the point where we were too efficient. But ultimately, how does this work and how do you gauge sort of alliance-wide mobilization efforts to get to that production rate we need to sustain this war effort? Because without us, right, I mean, we're willing to fight to the last Ukrainian, unfortunately, but they need the tools in order to do the fighting on our behalf. Well, a couple of items. First, uh, and, and this goes to your question in an indirect way, Uh, When Michael talked about this year's budget being higher than last year's uh, congressionally approved budget, the question is, what do you mean by higher? And it could be higher without any real growth. Uh, And that will go to our credibility, because clearly, if we're not going to have any real growth or minimal real growth, then Mr. Putin will see that there are limits to just how much we're going to be willing to give up from our own stocks uh, in order to uh, support the Ukrainians. So that, that's one point. And related to that, uh, you may all have seen uh, Jake Sullivan on CNN last night. He had a town hall and he was asked the, the question that many people have asked, which is, why have we been so slow in delivering the HIMARS, the Bradleys, the Patriots, we all know what they are, uh, which could have made a difference quite some time ago. And he really did not answer the question. And that, I think, is what could cause Mr. Putin to believe that he can continue. Because there already are reports that despite all the fine words said at Munich, uh, the Europeans aren't doing very much more than they have been doing. 
Uh, and it's not clear where the United States is going to be. We're still not going to be sending tanks for a year. Now, uh, could we do more? Of course we could do more. Are we, have we been willing to uh, pay contractors to have their workers on three shifts every day, seven days a week? It means overtime. It means more money. But are we willing to do that? Not yet. Uh, the Ukrainians desperately need the 155 shells and, frankly, the tubes, which burn out. And I, I was speaking to a veteran uh, whose uh, father uh, fought against the Soviets in the Finnish war, uh, uh, the Winter War of 1939, and who pointed out that artillery still can wipe out entire brigades if you've, and that was when you had towed artillery that wasn't guided. Now, of course, we have both uh, uh, self-propelled and guided and, and smart shells. Uh, and the, the Russians are just sending cannon fodder out there. So there's things we could do and we're not doing it. And, and I have a piece that I think just about appeared in, in the Hill just now regarding the Chinese help. And, you know, the Chinese are essentially repaying the, the Russians for what the Soviet Union did for Korea and for them in uh, for North Korea and them in 1950 and 51 which was uh, not only to send ammunition and trainers, but to send Russian pilots and Russian aircraft with North Korean and Chinese markings. Uh, the Chinese could do the same thing right now. They're, they're probably already sending uh, munitions through uh, the Iranians, uh, and they could, in fact, uh, deliver all kinds of armaments using uh, Russian markings. And oh, by the way, who's going to know the difference between a Russian uh, Asiatic and a Chinese person. And so they could really can do this. And then the question becomes, how do we respond? Which goes to how does the war end? We have to respond first. There are still a lot of companies in the United States that ultimately are owned by the Chinese military. We have a list that right now runs at 56 companies. That is just the tip of the iceberg. We should identify every single one and essentially sanction them all, kick them out, Number one. Number two, stop all this nonsense about, oh, we can't send F-16s. We know we're going to send them. So instead of sending them next year or six months from now, send them right now. And for those who say, well, they're not going to make a difference. Yes, they are because they, they're air to ground as well as air to air. And oh, by the way, if you're training pilots who already know how to fly MiGs, it's not going to take forever to train them to fly F-16s. So that's nonsense. And of course, the tanks should have been going a while ago. So there are things we can do. And it is only going to be when Mr. Putin reaches out. All he has to do is reach out, put out a feeler. And then we can tell the Ukrainians, you need to start thinking about some kind of compromise. You cannot go to Zelensky and tell him to reach out first, because that will convince Putin that he has indeed won. And like the Taliban, and like you said earlier, that time is on his side. You cannot have that happen. Once Putin reaches out, then we can start talking to Zelensky and others uh, about what should be done. But otherwise, I am totally with Jim on this. This thing has to be seen as something that we will indeed not back off on. And a quick reminder to check out our weekly podcasts, Capus Ships, 
hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our new Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace and co-hosted by yours truly and JJ Gertler. Um, Patrick, I want to uh, bring you into this, right? I mean, looking at this both uh, as a strategist, right? I mean, your experience is much broader than just uh, the Asia Pacific. How does this end? What are the Chinese looking at? What are the drivers? What are we going to see, right? Wang Yi went from uh, Munich uh, to Moscow, pledged uh, support. It's paving the way for Xi Jinping uh, to go. Um, how likely is it that the Chinese are going to join this war? Uh, and if they do, what is it we have to do in return? Because the Chinese, you know, say like, well, you know, you had an overreaction. This is really all your fault. You pushed Russia into this, uh, right? They're going to use uh, Gallagher, uh, Mike Gallagher, the chairman of the of the House uh, Select China Committee, uh, going to Taiwan with a large group of members and say, ah, oh, well, you know, you, you know, right? I mean, everything is connected. The Chinese have a way of connecting everything to make their case, however nonsensical or hypocritical that might be. What what is what what is winning in uh, Ukraine look like, and then how do we deal with the Chinese? We heard, we heard from Dove on it, and what are the things that Washington has to be prepared for? Right, what are the next steps? How are the Chinese going to escalate this on Moscow's behalf? Well, we didn't begin this war. Russian aggression began the war, and Ukrainian courage has given us a clear signal that I think Ambassador Tommy Ko of Singapore put very well in a long editorial today in the Straits Times that we must not let aggression succeed. And if, if the Singapore ambassador can say that, um, you know, then the Americans can surely sign up for that as a basic line of what we need to do. When President Biden was in Kyiv meeting with President Zelensky, the two of them essentially agreed that they were hoping that the rush of munitions to Ukraine to launch a counteroffensive here in the next few weeks would help push Putin off of his terrible project of seizing Ukraine. Not immediately, but eventually. So they're hoping to have enough success on the battlefield, and that may not be a lot of success. They're measured by inches and in awful attrition when you think about what's happening in the eastern uh, part of Ukraine. Nonetheless, that's the that's the hope. That's the game plan. And I think both Zelensky and President Biden share that game plan. It may not work. Um, and yet, um, clearly, the China peace plan is neither a plan nor uh, serious about peace. So, you know, what is the alternative here? Um, the global south, uh, much ballyhooed about its uh, sitting on the fence, uh, still knows what's right and wrong. I mean, the U.N. General Assembly resolution condemning the war and asking for Russia to withdraw immediately passed this week 141 to 7. And that 7 is not the G7. It's a very different, distinct group of Russia, Belarus, Syria, North Korea, et cetera. Uh, the 32 abstentions, um, you know, that's sort of the cowardly way out. It's basically saying for some, we don't have the luxury of taking sides. Okay, that's true for some countries. Um, others, it's saying we're going to put our own self-interest first. And that's true for a number of other countries. Uh, and even our friends like India, but China's in a different category because China's putting itself up as 
the responsible stakeholder taking the lead of a peace plan when in fact they go into Munich blaming U.S. hegemony, not Russia, for the war. That, that prompted our ambassador in China, Nick Burns, to go to social media and note this was unworthy of a great power. Uh, you know, Wang Yi, in the words of Noah Barkin, misread the room in Munich by blaming the United States and not attacking the real enemy here, Russia's aggression. Um, and then Wang Yi went to Moscow and made it clear that Russia is now very much the junior partner of China. And if Xi Jinping goes to Moscow in the coming weeks, as we expect him to do so, it will be uh, with China clearly in charge of this relationship and this whole idea of a global security initiative, which is now one of Xi Jinping's latest uh, key uh, proposals for the world, is really nothing less than uh, a Chinese bid for hegemony uh, to displace the U.S. Uh, rules-based system. You know, so that's how I see uh, much of what's going on right now. Uh, we can't let aggression prevail. We know that. We don't know exactly how it will end, but I think give President Zelensky some credit for some nuance, despite the public clamor in Ukraine where the people are pushing for even going back and taking, kicking Russia all out of Ukraine territory, including Crimea. Um, I think President Zelensky is looking for uh, something in between there at this moment, something that will allow for diplomacy to prevail. You know, in the event that the Chinese uh, do what it is we expect them to do, what's the right response and how does U.S. congressional visit to Taiwan, right? I mean, how, how do these two blend? Because the Chinese will want to lash out somehow, right? Uh, in in yes. the wake of the promise by Mike Gallagher, and I think other members have said this, we arm Taipei to the teeth. It makes it a harder problem for the Chinese, and therefore we're helping deterrence, uh, right? From a Chinese perspective, you're making it harder for them to invade the island, and they resent that, uh, right? Um, because they're trying to isolate. And, and again, however cowardly a vote for abstention is, India is a very, very big country and them buying products and oil and other things from the Russians, you know, ultimately help the Russians, right? I mean, that is a big block on the other yeah. side with a whole bunch of countries in the middle who, you know, quote unquote, I don't want to take a stance. Well, okay, the world then gets split into good guys, you know, and, and basically bad guys, you know, or people who just don't care, right? So how do, how do we deal how do you put pressure on China uh, in that case, given that Russian sanctions aren't even working? I mean, we're not even punishing the Russians. You're right. And for all those countries that are buying in the Russian economy, they are subsidizing the war indirectly. So they have some uh, shame to, to, to share. But China is in a different camp here because China is putting itself up on a pedestal, um, embracing Russia, giving Russia a, a great deal of support. And I think it was brilliant on the part of Secretary Blinken to say we will not tolerate uh, lethal arms from China to Russia because it it did two things. One, it put down a marker saying we know what you're talking about with Russia. We know you're talking about these uh, kamikaze drones, for instance, that could be delivered by April. Um, but um, one, you haven't provided lethal arms directly to Russia after a year of fighting. Your, your no limits partner has real limits. Um, so we're both putting down a marker and a red line for warning China to, to not go fast on lethal arms uh, to Russia, but also pointing out there is a gap between Moscow and Beijing, despite all the rhetoric, despite the symbolism of, of Wang Yi's visit and, and what will happen with Xi and Putin meet, um, there is a big gap. And that's because China, um, and the only point about the peace plan, the 12-point peace plan that China put forward that we could probably sign up to is, is no nuclear attacks and no attacks on nuclear plants. There, I think it's China showing its hand that they do 
care about um, global uh, stability, but they define global stability in Ukraine as only affecting stability if it goes nuclear. So don't escalate to the nuclear level and we can live with it, says China. That's not acceptable to most of the world, to the transatlantic alliance in particular, to the United States. Uh, and we have to keep putting uh, the spotlight on China's shameful support for Russia. Now, um, in terms of Taiwan, this is critically important. We've, not, we've seen announcements this week that the American uh, military, uh, whether it's the Michigan National Guard training some 500 Taiwan soldiers this year in the United States, or whether it's uh, the tripling or quadrupling of our trainers on the ground in Taiwan um, this year from 30 or 40 to 100 to 200, that's what uh, Wall Street Journal and others are reporting. Um, you know, this is a sign to China that um, we are going to take seriously uh, deterrence uh, in Asia, uh, just as we take seriously um, ending the war in Europe. Um, and yet Taiwan is becoming more of a military planning priority for both uh, China and for the U.S. and its allies. Um, the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party that uh, Chairman Mike Gallagher leads um, is actually starting their hearings with primetime TV this Tuesday. It's going to be sort of like um, you know, the January 6th commission in terms of realizing that you can get a bigger audience for what you're trying to do if you can pack into a into prime time um, content that uh, the country wants to, to or needs to hear about. Uh, now, the risk there is you want to make sure it doesn't become overly politicized. It keeps bipartisan support. You also run the risk of making it look like a Monday night football uh, game uh, where there's a clear winner or loser here, whereas China is not going away. We have to have some kind of coexistence with China. Um, and Mike Gallagher knows that very well. Um, but this is a chance for people to bring former National Security Advisor H.R. Uh, McMaster, uh, Matt Pottinger, the China specialist, uh, you know, into uh, prime time and start focusing on what China is doing and what we need to do about it. And partly what they're doing is trying to chip away at uh, Taiwan's uh, security and autonomy. Uh, but they're also trying to displace us in the region and globally. And what they're not doing is they're not really supporting peace in a critical war uh, in Europe, namely the Ukraine uh, conflict with Russia. By bringing uh, people uh, from the last administration who were regarded by some as so shrill that they were undermined. I know, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing Matt, nor am I criticizing HR. I'm just saying that sometimes the characterization of what it is they were saying and how may have been the right things, but they were regarded as maybe a little bit too shrill. And then oftentimes, right, their own boss, the president, was actively undermining those messages. And Xi Jinping was listening to Donald Trump. He wasn't listening to Matt Pottinger. And I just want to stress, everybody has a lot of confidence on the great job Mike Gallagher is going to do uh, leading this committee and do so in a bipartisan uh, fashion. The question is whether or not the right tone is struck in order to win the American people's support without either sort of uh, unnecessarily alarming them, uh, nor being uh, partisan, nor being too shrill, but hitting that Goldilocks tone to get people motivated to understand what the threat is, to not panic, uh, and and to take it seriously to do all of the things that that needed to get done. That's that's my only point, and I'm convinced uh, that he's going to be able uh, to do that. They are bringing other voices, including to talk about the technological competition, to talk about the human rights abuses in China. Um, and I continue to hear Democrats on the committee praise uh, Chairman Gallagher. Um, and I heard uh, President Biden uh, talk about <laughs> praising uh, Chairman Gallagher. Uh, so I, I think 
Um, it, you know, at this point, um, let's give the chairman of that committee, uh, Mike Gallagher, uh, license to, to lead uh, what is a very important issue for the country. And let's hope that it doesn't go down that path of being overly politicized when, in fact, you know, donuts for breakfast are politicized these days. Anything is politicized. Nonetheless, um, give him a chance to <clears throat> highlight the challenge that China poses and then to develop uh, bipartisan solutions for this. There will be some who will not be happy with a focus on China as a challenge and a problem. Um, but I think that's the minority right now. I think the majority on both parties continues to say, you know, we don't want war with China, but we need to be able to defend our interests. And that's going to take a lot of things that we're not already doing um, and working with a lot of others. So um, I think there's plenty of scope here in between overly politicized and uh, drawing urgency and uh, attention to the challenge. We're going to go into lightning round. Uh, we've got about five minutes left on the program and, and three important questions uh, to discuss. Uh, Patrick, real quick, North Korean missile tests, what did they tell us? Uh, what are they signaling? Uh, and, you know, sort of why now? Well, the resumption of alliance drills, including a tabletop exercise on new North Korea possible nuclear <laughs> use, um, was bracketed by North Korean tests, uh, and uh, Hwasong-15 uh, ICBM tests and a couple of short-range missiles, and then after that, um, four Hwasol-2 strategic cruise missiles, which, by the way, we're not sure they've actually miniaturized the nuclear warhead for those, so it's still very much a theoretical test. Nonetheless, the, the point is this. North Korea wants to nullify our so-called strategic assets, anything that can come and, and take out the leadership in Pyongyang, including F-35s and carriers and the airfields in South Korea, and hold the American homeland hostage. Mm -hmm. And we, meanwhile, want to preserve extended deterrence. And that's important right. because the People Powers Party uh, leader this past week again came out uh, calling for an independent nuclear option, possibly for South Korea. Uh, Jim, really quick, since we're uh, talking about China and Asia, um, are the Europeans right? I mean, there is a big understanding of the threat in the United States. There's been a growing understanding. Some in Europe have understood it. Do you know, you know, is there a, a palpable change in how the Europeans uh, are are regarding China at this point, and and how much uh, and and how willingly they're going to be working with the United States, uh, especially for example, if China starts shipping weapons to Russia, overtly. Well, I think yes, you know, you know, it's all relative. I mean, compared to uh, where Europe was a few years ago on China, yeah, there's been a big movement, uh, but it's it's spotty depending on which nation you're talking to, which leader you're talking to, and then political willingness willingness to actually. Uh, play a role to to deal with China uh, in Europe. And so, um, you know, it's still a bit uh, fuzzy out there. If there's going to be movement of uh, Chinese munitions to Russia, uh, that'll certainly use. But then they're going to look for leadership. Uh, they're going to be looking around saying, OK, so what do we do about this? Uh, who's going to who's going to lay out the plan here? Is it the European Union? Is it going to be the United States? So there's a lot more work to do with Europe on China. Uh, they're, in the, they're, they're definitely understanding and listening and uh, knowing something must be done. But again, it's spotty, depending on who you're talking to. Right. Uh, and, uh, and it's going to really require leadership from the U.S. to point the way to go and then to bring the allies along that, that route. Um, Michael, let me bring you in uh, really quickly. Uh, National Defense uh, Industrial Association, Aerospace Industries Association and Professional Services Council uh, put a note, I mean, calling for 
uh, you know, accelerating the arms export uh, approval process. Uh, it has been getting in the way. Um, I, I don't want to uh, bring, uh, you know, uh, uh, nightmares for all of you who served in government uh, on this. Uh, real quick, I mean, what, are, we, are we going to see movement on it? Because this administration has really been moving very, very slowly on a lot of these, uh, you know, without compromising anything that you're working on with clients and other things, right? I mean, what's the overall sentiment in Congress for sort of accelerating this? particularly for allies and partners? Well, look, I applaud the uh, effort by the groups that you mentioned, and I agree with them 100%. It's an overly complicated and slow process. I think Mike Gallagher uh, discovered that on his trip to Taiwan recently when he saw how backlogged uh, the weapons that the Taiwanese have ordered are. Um, but that's just one small piece of the puzzle. It's The, the system is very complicated when it comes to the state uh, department and Defense Department, and to some degree the Commerce Department, but the same on, on Capitol Hill as well. I mean, the tiered review system is broken. I mean, there are too many sales that get notified to Congress in informal notification and languish there for sometimes years at a time. Uh, and that part of the system is not statutory, but yet the State Department won't go to formal unless informal has been approved. And I think the administration, you know, is making a mistake, you know, in my opinion, to to put too much of a focus when it comes to human rights on arm sales, because it just gets back to this never ending, you know, can't do instead of can do and endless fault finding in our allies. And you know, to some degree, I think we live in a glass house on that. I think a lot of our allies look at us and say, well, what about Tyree Nichols and George Floyd and Breonna Table and Ahmaud Arbery? How would they feel about human rights in this country? And, you know, we lose out uh, for small excuses on these sales to countries like China, for one, uh, but also to our European allies uh, or other allies that go to these countries and say, look, our equipment may not be as good as the Americans, but we can get it to you a lot faster. And well, as we've seen, our production levels are too low for the things that we need. And we need to step up our foreign weapons sales in order to protect our own industrial base and our own surge capacity. But very quickly, uh, Jim, I, I forgot to ask you this. So you're going to get a bite at this apple in part because you were in the middle of the New START uh, negotiations. Uh, Vladimir Putin said uh, he is going to suspend the New START treaty. He didn't uh, cancel it, but it always begins with a suspension, right? I mean, he's a drama queen when it comes to that. Um, ultimately, what does it mean? Because it seems like he wants to blind transparency so that he can actually rattle his nuclear saber more. Is, is that about right? And what is it that we can do uh, right. I mean, at the time uh, Joe Biden was in uh, Kiev, uh, Russia decided to test the nuclear uh, ICBM uh, that uh, ended up, um, uh, you know, not working, apparently, according to U.S. intelligence. I think it was another miscalculation on Putin's part. I think uh, Putin felt that this uh, start agreement is much more desirable and, and valuable to the United States and that holding it hostage might produce something uh, in terms of movement in the U.S. I think that's absolutely a miscalculation. Uh, not that the arms control community particularly uh, is very much uh, mourning uh, this kind of decision, uh, but, but, but the impact of it is that, well, it's going to give us an ability, if he pulls out, it's going to give us the ability to now deal with a rising uh, ICBM threat coming out of China. In a lot of ways, that uh, agreement um, was mired in an, in an older time. And as far as uh, a breakout that, you know, that he's going to leave that start agreement in order to build more ICBMs, he's well, he will lose to the United States. So he's, you know, he's really assumed something was more valuable to us than it really is. Uh, and he has, in fact, put him in a bad place. If he wants to start an arms race with the U.S. on ICBMs, he's in a bad, bad place. 
So uh, I think this was a calculated move. It was a tactical move. Maybe he wanted to scare people by, again, talking about nuclear weapons, but from another angle. I think whatever his thinking was, it was a miscalculation, and it's not going to do anything in terms of the U.S. and Ukraine. Dove, uh, I want to bring you uh, in uh, to uh, the discussion uh, on uh, Israel. Uh, situation, obviously, from a domestic standpoint is problematic, right? You have a large group of Israelis proposing uh, potential uh, proposed judicial reforms uh, that would weaken the high court. Uh, on the other hand, there are those who look uh, at uh, the number of Palestinians who are being killed and wondering whether or not there's a broader strategy at play here, ultimately, right? I mean, when Israel agreed to evacuate from Gaza, the government's strategy was to try to undermine the Palestinian Authority uh, in order to have a more radical outcome in Gaza, ultimately to be able to point to Gaza and say, aha, see, this is why um, we can't afford uh, to uh, get rid of the West Bank uh, in some respects. Uh, now there's this sense that, okay, is this being done to weaken the Palestinian Authority? I am not justifying any of their corruption, uh, their malfeasance, their incompetence or anything else. But in order to be able to you know, you know, I mean, because ultimately this is helping Islamic Jihad where they're gaining ground uh, now uh, and Palestinians themselves are frustrated. Right. Is there a bigger game here afoot on what's going on uh, in order to be able to say, hey, look, this is the reason why the West Bank cannot uh, go off on its own and become a Palestinian state. It's just a bad idea. It's just going to be a radical terrorist haven. What's the broader strategy, do you think? Well, I, I suspect that there may be some on the extreme right of the Israeli government who would think that way. Uh, there's a huge difference between the West Bank and Gaza in that there are just so many settlers uh, in the West Bank. It's up to about a half a million now that uh, the argument that, gee, you know, if, if we let these people take over, this is what's going to happen. Uh, in, in Gaza, they actually did take over, and I don't think there's any likelihood that they would do the same with Islamic Jihad. I think partly what you're seeing on the part of the Palestinians is frustration, and that's probably an understatement, uh, with what they are worried about it, it, with respect to this new government. And, and frankly, uh, it's totally understandable. you got some crazies in the government who clearly would like to push all the Arabs out to the other side of the Jordan River. And so you're getting this kind of reaction and then you get reaction and counter reaction. I think that's more what's going on there. I would just like to add one point about Putin's pulling out a, a suspending start. Some of his uh, uh, minions have been putting out word that what really needs to be done at this stage is to look at intermediate nuclear capabilities again and this time bring in the British and the French. It's never going to happen. The British and French see this not as theater nuclear weapons, but strategic weapons. But it gives you a sense of the efforts that the Putin crowd are trying to make to discombobulate the West any way they can. Uh, and, and speaking about discombobulate, as we uh, record this program, uh, Dmitry Medvedev uh, is saying that Russia, Russia has to push back uh, on Poland's borders, right? They're proving to be so successful in Ukraine. It obviously makes a lot of sense for them to get into a war with uh, uh, NATO, right? That, that would trigger Article 5, right? It's, it just defies um, logic. Uh, but then again, if you live in that ecosystem, I suppose it makes sense. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Terrific conversation as always. Hope you all have a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.